Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. Okay, so uh, today we're talking about <coughs> territory navigation. We're going to talk about territory and navigation today. Like, actually, there's one set of slides on territory, there's a set on navigation. I might get to the second part because this isn't too long. Um, who knows? We'll find out. And don't worry if we're ahead, I've got a whole bunch of other things in reserve, uh, sort of sitting in my hip pocket. So there's things like social insects, which I think I want to get to anyway. So we may end up doing a bunch of extra stuff, but I'm, you know. I've got material, so I'm pretty happy with that. Um, let's, here, let's just go there, and I should do it. So, how do you define territoriality when an animal is territorial? Uh, the best, best definition, I think, is Nick Davies' definition. Um, in Krebs and Davies. Krebs and Davies wrote a book in 80, uh, sorry, 78, and then it was re... I think they did another uh, version in 84, uh, another edition, but it's John Krebs and Nick Davies, uh, and it's called Behavioral Ecology, actually. Um, and Davies wrote the section on territoriality in that book. Um, and he says it's when the animals are more spaced out than you would expect by chance. In other words, because think about this, if you would expect by chance that animals would be spaced out in a certain way, if they're more spaced out, that means they're taking up, that they've got territories. So there's a little couple of nice little graphs here. These are frogs. By chance, and this is obviously through sort of a Monte Carlo experiment because it's not a completely smooth curve, you would expect them, this is a Poisson distribution, right? So you would expect them to have the, the nearest uh, neighbor distance, the most common one, to be about it centimeters. Yeah, what's that? About thirty-five centimeters. And in fact, the most common is more like about uh, ninety centimeters. So if they're more spaced out, that means we have a territorial species. It's a nice, it's a nice operational way to define it. That's what I like about this. Whereas I hate overhead projectors. Here we have, I think these are some kind of slugs, right? Looks like it. Um, we take a look at the nearest neighbor distance. This is in millimeters, as you can see. And again, we have this sort of Poisson distribution. Uh, we end up, though, with them. We expect this, we get this. Much more common for them to be spaced at about two millimeters rather than a little less than one. So we see they're territorial. So that's just how we define it. Nice and easy way to do it. Makes sense. Does, this, does it make sense? Yeah. Now the question is, when should an animal be territorial? Well, it's optimality, baby. We've got to look at the optimality. There's an optimality model. Functionally, an animal should only be defend the territory when the costs of defending the territory are less than the benefits. Right? So it's going to be a cost of, of being territorial. What's the cost? It seems like you might have to fight. You also have to be vigilant. So you might not have to necessarily fight, but you've got to patrol. You've got to go around your territory making sure others aren't taking the resource that you're interested in. That you're interested in defending. The benefits are you get all this stuff. So if the resource is, say, food, 
you get lots of food. If the resorts is mates, you get lots of mates. So those are great reasons to be territorial. But it costs. You have to, let's say you're a bird, we'll talk a lot about birds today, you have to fly around making sure that no other bird is encroaching on your territory. Right? So it looks something like this, theoretically. Here's the costs and the benefits. These are the benefits. And the benefits, the costs are going to go up, you can imagine, in a linear fashion. The bigger the territory, the more the costs. If it's another square meter to defend, the cost of defending another square meter and another square meter and another square meter is going to go up linearly, generally. Does that make sense? Right? But the benefits are going to even out. At some point, you've got so much territory, you don't get anything else out of it, do you? Let's say that the resource you're defending uh, is food. Well, you can't eat any more food than you can eat. So it stops being a benefit. So this is why we get this function here, the asymptotes. Right? So it goes up very quickly, and then it starts asymptotes. Like, I can't get anything else. So we should never get a territory, in this case, any bigger than B, or any smaller than A. The optimal territory size is going to be here at X, where the difference between the benefits and the costs is the greatest. Right? Make sense? And does it make sense, theoretically, why you would have one curve that's going up in a straight line, and one that asymptotes? I mean, we can think about this, that eventually the cost of defending uh, an extra square meter of territory, eventually it's probably not going to be uh, linear. It might asymptote too. But for most of what we'd be interested in, it should probably be a straight line. Whereas this, again, you can see why it would go up pretty quickly. Extra square meter, you go from one square meter of territory to another, then you've got twice as many flowers. Let's say you're like a, a nectar-feeding bird. You've got twice as many flowers. To, 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 now you get twice as much food in just one square meter. Another square meter, now you've got another 30, sorry, twice as much. Now you've got yeah, another 50% more. And then you get 25% more. Right? And now we've got 20% more. And then 16, 14, and then 12 and a half, then 11, then 10. I went up to 10 times. That was nice. And eventually it gets to a point where it's like, it gets bigger and bigger. Like, okay, now it's going to be 0 0.001, 0 0.001. It's extra, but it gets to the point where it's the. Uh, if you, anybody here take economics? Yeah, it's a law of diminishing marginal return, right? It's exactly what it is. There's a lot in common between. Uh, you'd be surprised about this. Economics and modeling in biology. It's a great deal in common. Great deal in common. So, the resource should be scarce. Just think about this. If the resource isn't scarce, why the hell would you defend it? If everybody's got some, you don't need it. 
then it should be defensible. Because if you can't defend it, there's no reason trying. You can even think about this in like international relations terms, right? Countries will defend things like water and oil. Right? They won't defend air so much. It's not really defensible. No blood for oxygen, so you're not going to see that. It's got to be scarce and defensible. Because if everybody's got it, it doesn't matter. So it's, if it's abundant, and if it's not defensible, like oxygen, there's very little you can do. So you have to be scarce, defensible, and the costs have to be less than the benefits. Make sense? Okay, here's some examples. These are gullwing sunbirds. This is Gilbert Wolf's classic stuff. The resource here is flowers. These are, these are nectar-feeding birds. And you can take a look at the size of the territory in meters squared. Uh, actually, they, and then they've taken the square root of it, so it ends up being a straight line. Okay, up to 50 square meters. How many flowers do you get? This is interesting. It doesn't matter how big your territory is. That's what this shows. You get the same number of flowers. So the flower density, well, the density isn't equal. The amount of flowers is equal. That's what I should have said there. The density actually increases. Because as you can see here, with this male, he's got 1,000 flowers in 50 square meters. Then this one's got about 1,000 flowers in about 42 square meters. This one's got about 2,000 flowers in 40 square meters. It's all between 1,000 and 2,000 flowers. This is a straight line. There's no relationship, right? So in this case, actually, a big territory sucks. Because you get the same amount you do in the small territory. So, well, what the, the point of that graph is to show you that you right away might think, what are they defending? They're defending food resource, but actually they're not. They can't be. Because everybody has the access to the same number of flowers. And in fact, a small territory is going to be better than a big territory, isn't it? Because it takes a lot less energy to defend a small territory. But you get the same amount of flowers. So a small territory, in this case, is actually a better territory. Ask backwards. So what they're trying to do, basically, in essence here, is get somewhere between 1,000 and 2,000 flowers. Which doesn't, at first blush, you might think, well, no, the bigger territory, no, no, the shitty territories are really big and have, it's like barren land, right? It's like, yeah, I got a thousand acres in the badlands of Oklahoma. Who cares? Can't grow anything there. The badlands in Oklahoma? Alberta's badlands. Let's go with Alberta. Oh, and there's no oil unless you can make sure that food. Because having oil somewhere, that's pretty, that's a good resource. Not, your, not a whole lot of your golden-winged sunbirds are defending oil. 
It's all about the nectar. Delicious, delicious nectar. The territory size, if, if ter- a, better, big, a big territory is better for you, it should lead to an increase in fitness. Here we have pronghorns, which are basically uh, an ungulate. Okay, they're a horned animal with hooves. And if you take a look at here, this is the mean uh, doe group size during rut on territory. In other words, during mating season, how many does are there? Right? A doe is just a deer, female deer. <laughs> See what I did there? Anyway, it's a female pronghorn. What's the resource in this territory? Babes. And what's this? What's this one show? You get more females when there's more food. This is the density of uh, forage. This is the net weight in grams per meter squared. Okay, and they basically uh, eat grass and stuff. So again, we're looking at the quality of the territory here, not necessarily the size, but the quality. This is the amount, this is their net weight, right, per meter squared. In other words, they might have a really good couple of meters and you don't need it. But then again, what happens in that case, a whole bunch of females hang around. The females know where the good territories are. This is the accessible. This was a little less clear. There is a kind of a problem I've always found in biology. And that's, especially behavioral stuff. I'm not talking about, you know, molecular biology, all this stuff. But in behavioral stuff, a lot of times you'll see people that are in the modeling and they'll draw a graph and they'll just draw a line through it. And you go, you know, that's an interesting curve that you've done. I remember when John Krebs was speaking to us with T, he was talking about this model he had. It was all very interesting. And then he showed the data and he showed this, he drew this step function through it. And Roland John, yeah. It's like, no, no, really. This is true. Well, you're probably right. But who think those data... Looks like you just drew a line in there. Again, no one talks about many people still talk about John. So what do we have here? We got the number of mates. So again, we're talking about fitness. This is good. And this is the uh, vegetation density on the territory. That line actually probably does fit through there if you did a regression, but there's a lot of error there. There's a lot of error there. So it seems to be the case, especially here, that a good territory leads to more mating. So why be territorial? Because it leads to mates. Dave? Yep. Right there, the animal on the upper... In the upper one? What kind of animal is it? Yeah. It's a pronghorn. It's a kind of... Um, it's like a deer. Okay. Yeah. Make sense? Yeah. Oh, that should be good. <clears throat> That's in the wrong place. Remember back when we talked about the sunbirds? That's what this should be. Because it wasn't flowers, but floral density. So now if we went back and if you pretended that little thing we talked about with the with the pronghorns wasn't. 
Here's the territory size, and here's the number of flowers, the density. Again, same thing here, territory size. So you can see in that case, it was the amount of flowers in an area. So as I said before, the small territories were actually better territories. Because you can see the small ones actually have more flowers. I'm not going to edit this and put it all together like that. You're just going to have to imagine. Okay. Well, the next slide actually does make sense. Okay. Any questions on this that is misplaced or the other ones? Okay. Now, there's also cases where territories have no resources at all. And this is, in fact, fascinating. This is something called lek breeding. Um, a lek is a term for a territory that is only occupied during mating season. <clears throat> so it's only occupied during mating season. And it has no obvious resource. And it tends to be in a traditional place for each sort of, I don't know what you call them, clan or group or whatever, herd of animals. So a lot of your ungulates do it. Ungulates are uh, hoofed animals. Moose. Things like that. So is this applicable primarily to migrating? A, a lot of times it is because caribou also have leg breeding, yeah. And they'll go back to this traditional territory, each herd. And what ends up happening is they all, a lot of birds do it too, they end up just hanging out there and displaying. Sometimes there's fights. And it's always just males doing this. Not females. The females watch the males display. So they all get together at the same place each year at the same time of year, usually in the spring because that's mating season, and they display and sometimes they fight. This is, for example, this is the function of the great big antlers on moose, on male moose. They use them to fight each other. They butt heads. And there's a certain territory on the leg that is the ideal territory, which is the prime one, the best one, and they fight to be there. And eventually, if they've been there for a while, they get mating opportunities. The females come over and say, I like your leg. That's a lovely territory you have. Even though the territory might be smaller than this room. And it has no obvious function. It has there's nothing that there's a step there. There's nothing that it's defending. It's just, you know, on the side of the hill. And a lot of birds do this too, as I said. Males just hang out. Now, they, in some animals, they just hang out. In other ones, they just fight. Some, some, some they'll display to each other. Others, they'll actually go at it. They'll fight. Okay? They make the fem wait for females to make the choice. When I was an undergraduate at Western, they were fraternities. This is a lot like a fraternity party. Males all hang out in the middle and females make the choice. 
How do they know it's actually the specific immediate territory? Yeah, because you can look year after year and the same thing keeps happening. It's really bizarre. Because the territory itself may just be a patch of bread ground on the side of the hill. And there's nothing obviously good about it compared to anything else. Right? And the males will fight to be there. That's the other thing. Like they're clearly defending this. So if you've got a bunch of moose, and the good territory is here, and Jordan comes along and says, like, get out of here, go over there. And there's nothing better about over there. Except that over here is like, this is the prime place, this is what the females like. The ladies like this place. Why? I mean, I don't know. And if Jordan can knock me out of this place, then he ends up being the one that gets all the mating opportunities. Again, I think I'm Jordan because he's the other guy here. So is it the central territory? This is a question you can ask. Is it the one in the middle? Because does that show the female that I can take on all comers? It doesn't matter if you're behind me, to the left of me, to the right of me, in front of me. I can take you on and I will win. Well, that would be, a, you know, those are good genes perhaps, then. Is it the right time? It may be. Think about this. If it's not mating season, you can go stand over there all you want. Right? Because there's no mating, so it doesn't matter. You go stand over there all you want. Like, hey, I'm over here. It's okay. We know. We already all cared up. But what if it's not just the right time of year, the right time of day? You want to make sure the females are there watching, basically. It might be a display thing where it's easiest to see the display where they're standing. And in fact, I think depending on the species, we're going to have all of these things. Some of the animals that do this, this is especially true with birds, there's leg breeding and then there's territory selection later. So the male gets mating opportunities, but then he goes and sets up a territory where the females nest. This isn't the case in ungulates like you know moose and such. But it may be the case, well in a lot of words it is the case that later on, after the males have these mating opportunities, he goes and sets up another territory that he defends that has some food in it and stuff. And the females lay their eggs there at their nests. So in that case, it may very well be that it's for some reason an indication of territory selection later. If you can stand over here for reasons X, Y, and Z that we don't know, it says that you will have a good territory later. So it's just an honest signal. Maybe. The Ugandan cub, which is a kind of, uh, as you can see, a horned animal. And you can see here he's rather horny. Because what he's getting here, obviously, is copulations. Here we have 64 females. And then we have our males. And look what's happening to number one. He got 35 matings. No matter what the hell leck breeding is doing, it is allowing the first few males, if we've got 64, we've got about 35 here, 
And then another, what's that, 12, so that's 35, 47. 47 of the 64 meetings are happening between numbers 1 and 2. So that's 47, and that's probably, well, that's probably 13, so that's probably 64. That's what I said there, right? 64 and 77. Uh, 88 meetings. So you can see, in fact, what's happened here is we've got more meetings, in fact, than we have females. So what's going on there? The females are meeting with multiple partners, but more often they're seeing if they can move up a little bit, going up to number one. Look what happens to these guys over here. You get past number 11. You're not getting anything. You just stood there all this time displaying and maybe fighting with these awesome horns, and you got nothing. Whereas if you're number one, you're probably the captain of the football team, you know, things like that. Pretty amazing. Even better is an white bearded mannequin, which is kind of bird. <laughs> Look at this. This guy gets 70. 72 or so, uh, 12, uh, 8, and nothing. Wow. We know it's also true there are temporal lecks. I talked about time. There are ones that are purely temporal, where, or pretty much purely temporal, in some uh, water bugs, water insects where the females show up at a certain time and place, and it's a time of day. We know that for sure. With these, it's a little bit different. It's a time and a place, but the, the, the time is spread out over a few days. With these, with uh, water, water spiders, I think, uh, which are bugs that uh, run on the surface tension of water, um, it's like within a few minutes of a day, and that's it. And that's if you're there, you're the male, you get a lot of babies. The neat thing about lek breeding is it's clearly functional, it gets you, it clearly gets you, increases your fitness. But that's all it does. It does nothing else. The territory they're standing on has no quality other than it gets you uh, mating opportunities. It does nothing else. Questions about that? It's pretty straightforward stuff. And this is why we're doing navigation as well today, because it's pretty short. Conclusions about territoriality. Many animals are territorial. Uh, in fact, pretty most, you know, you think about it. And it's usually about some defensible resource. Um, off mountain models are easy to do here. Uh, you can often get the fitness measures. Uh, just take a look at the last two we looked at. Now, that was lek breeding, but still. The currency of the optimality model is easy. The currency just means whatever you're optimizing. And when we talk about foraging, we're going to talk about optimizing uh, food intake, things like that. Here we're talking about either it's the resource, if we know what the resource is, about food or food density, or if it's literally just mating opportunities. So that's actually what makes modeling in these kind of cases pretty simple. And that's why we can draw that nice little graph with the uh, diminishing returns of a bigger uh, 
territory. Questions before we move on to navigation, which I think is more interesting. <laughs> I'm biased because I've done stuff, a lot of stuff in spatial memory in that, so that's what we're basically talking about in a lot of respects today. I don't know why it's doing that, but it's kind of fun. Um, okay. Talk about territoriality. To get around in a territory, an animal must know where it's going. And it has to know where it's been. And it may have to, in essence, plan a route. Now, I don't mean plan a route the way we're talking about it with people. Right? I don't mean like when you say to yourself, what I'm going to do today, I have to, uh, well, what did I do on, uh, oh, I, I know, traditionally on Founder's Day, uh, there's two things I do. I get a haircut, because it's usually happened to turn out my hair looks a little stupid. So I get my traditional Founder's Day haircut. And I thought, you know what else I need? I have to go buy a video game. No, what I'll do is I'll get on the bus after I drop off John, and I'll go to the mall, and I'll go to Regis there, and I'll cut my hair, and then I'll go to EB Games, and I'll buy uh, a game that I've been looking at for a while, and I just think, yeah, I should buy it, so that's me, 18 bucks, and it's you, so I'll buy that game, and then I'll go home. I'm not saying the animal's playing like that. But I do have to know where I'm going, and may have to know where I'm going. <coughs> Excuse me. So I have to get to know where you've been, and know where you're going. Those are the keys. Because think about it, you have to be able to get back home. You have to know the route home. Right? Once you get there, wherever there may be, maybe it's, so it's in your territory, you're out getting food. And you gotta you go, um, okay, I don't know how to get home. That's not good. Just get back. And it would be nice if you could get back because maybe you're traveling around your territory all over the place, all kinds of different directions. But it would be nice to take a nice, instead of tracing your steps back, wouldn't it be nice to go straight home? It makes much more sense. So it's nice to know where I'm going. It's also nice to know, have a representation of some sort of the whole environment so I can say, and then I'll take a straight line home. Like when I went back home after getting my uh, haircut and buying Operation Flashpoint Dragon Rising. I didn't stop off at Jonathan's school and then walk home. Hey, took the bus all the way to the bus stop right near my house. See? You cheap. I thought that through. Took it went straight home. Now, you could think of there's complicated ways to do this. What's the simplest way to do this? An over trail. Right? Just leave. An order trail, like, like breadcrumbs in essence in the... In the what's that? Who's the breadcrumbs again? In the stories? Is it Hansel and Gretel? I think it's Hansel and Gretel. Those are disturbing. You ever read those fairy tales? They really are disturbing. And then they 
go into the woods and a woman wants to eat them. They're like Dexter. For the 17th century, you know. Oh, Grimm has a new episode out. So if you just leave a trail, and this is in fact how we tend to think all animals navigate. Well, as long as they just pee everywhere, they just follow the smell of their pee back home. And that's actually not going to be a very good solution. It will get you home. It'll get you home. As long as it doesn't rain or something and wash away all the odor trail, you will get home. However, the problem is you're going to be all over the place. Right? And then there's complicated cognitive mechanisms, like remembering how to get home. Remembering a map, having a map-like representation of the world. The simplest thing beyond a odor trail is what's called path integration. This is the simplest form of navigation to use as memory of any sort. All right. This is a Tunisian desert ant. This is a real path that a Tunisian desert ant has taken from its nest to find food. It's going around in a haphazard fashion. Right? Long-legged desert ant. You can see it's pretty good distance, 25 meters, so direct path, we're talking well over 15 meters away. And for an animal that big, it's a pretty good trip. So it goes all the way up here like this, but look at those straight on. So there's a twisted end going path, but a direct path home. So it's not using an odor trail, because it? it was using an odor trail, it would go out like this and come back like that. And it doesn't, it goes straight home. Uh, by the way, you know what it does when it gets home is, let's, it's, I'll tell you the mechanism in a second, but there might be a little bit of a mistake in the angle. So what it does when it gets home is it starts letting concentric circles until it finds its nest. Bigger and bigger. So when he gets home, and it stops here, it starts going like this. If, if, he, if he doesn't get to the nest hole right away. And that's, they're just built that way, they'll just do that. And in fact, so let's say it's off by a little bit, it's bound to find the nest that way. Once it gets to where its memory says, this is where home should be. doing here during path integration is it's storing direction and distance. I went five meters 
on an angle of 13 degrees. Then I turned 107 degrees and went another 9 meters. So you can see here, here's your outbound path. It's like this. We can then take, these are vectors. Remember doing vector math in school, in high school? A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, vector math, they're just numbers that have direction. Okay? Long time, maybe we them in physics. So all the animal's doing is storing those. And if you take all these vectors and add them up together, you get a path pointing right back home. It's really simple vector mathematics. When you first learned about vectors, in fact, that was likely what you learned to do, some vectors. Because they just have a number and they have dimension. So all these animals are doing is simple vector mathematics. So what's the animal have to do? The animal's task here, and by the way, we're talking about things like Tunisian long-legged desert ants. It has to keep a running total of distance and direction. And it has to remember all of those vectors for when it gets to the food so it can turn around and go home. Uh, I did four twice. Now I'm off. My distance is off. How do you angle vestibular sense, right? You know what direction you're going in. Like, you know if you turn right, and if it was a really sharp turn, like a 90 degree turn, or if it's like a half turn, so 45 degrees, you would know. But what if it's not 45 degrees, but it's 57 degrees? Every time you make a mistake now, Every error is going to add on to every other error. And the animal's going to make errors. <coughs> you couldn't do this very well without a compass. Right? And you want to do it accurately, you need a compass. And you'd also need to somehow know that every step you take is exactly the same distance. That's going to be hard to do too. You might be able to put one foot in front of the other. You ever done like orienteering? You ever done that in school? They give you a compass and they give you directions and then they tell you to find items. You ever done that in school? Yeah. It's fun. Right. And you got to find uh, flags and stuff like that. It's a competition. And when you're, you know, when something is so many meters away and they're giving it to you, you know, 350 meters that way, in that direction, you got to guess how far 350 is. It's not easy. You can go, okay, each step's about a meter. But if you're walking through the bush, and you're like, did I just, I just stepped over a great big log, was that a meter or two meters? And you can screw yourself up. And I think they're putting orienteering in the Olympics. 
Yeah, I put everything in the Olympics. I didn't dance. Ballroom dancing was in the Olympics. Like to see the logger be added. What's that? Like to see the logger be added. Yeah, yeah. Well, why not? Why not? I like to see that, you know, stock car racing. Like, why not just get nuts? Poetry. <laughs> put everything else in. Well, it's figure skating's in it. It's judged. Why not have poetry and painting? Look, it's a scam. Unless Candle wins that, I think it's awesome and completely fair. How would someone cheat in poetry? Right? It wouldn't be steroids. You've been reading a lot of Keats. I don't know. I picked the poet, that's what I had. How could this be improved? Think about it. And I know I don't think probably all of this, y'all downloaded that's fine, but you haven't think about this. How could you improve this system? There's so many path integration, but what we want to do now is get rid of the error. Or lessen the error. How are you going to do this? Yeah, Jordan. The way they would use like landmarks, that say like say that's split into three main parts, that whole three arrows. Yeah. They do like an estimate when say the first arrow meets the second one, like a yes. some kind of No, landmarks would work very well. Um <clears throat> well, integrating, and I got that in quotes because in fact this is you can do this through integral calculus, and that's why it's called path integration. If anybody here sails, does anybody here sail on a sailboat? No? Because there's something you do in there called dead reckoning. Which is exactly, the path integration is a method for dead reckoning. Dead reckoning is saying, I'm going this direction in this distance. Okay? That's how people used to navigate in boats. Uh, and, and if you are a sailor, you still know how to do it, but now they have GPSs. Okay? So periodically, the animal can take a fix and, and, and say, okay, like Jordan said, I, I think I'm here, but actually that landmark says uh, there's a discrepancy from what my, my representation says and what the landmark says, I'm going to believe the landmark. So the animal can take a fix by looking at a landmark, or even better, rather than landmarks, what about using the stars of the sun? That's how sailors navigate. Sailors use what's called an ephemeris table. Now, they don't anymore. They typically use a GPS. You have to know how to do this if you're a sailor. Because what if your GPS isn't working? When you're in the middle of the ocean. So you have to learn how to take a fix with what's called a sextant. Right? You ever seen those old tiny things and they got like a little scope in them? And you look and you find a, you take a fix from a star and you see what the azimuth is and the elevation. The azimuth is just the angle. And the elevation, you need a compass to move And then the elevation of the star and you know what time it is. You have to know what time it is. So you get an accurate watch. And then you look up in your ephemeris table and you say, it's 10.38 p.m. Polaris, the North Star, is at this azimuth and this elevation, therefore my latitude and longitude are here. And that's what sailors used to do. They would dead reckon during the day. So it's, what speed are we going? 
and the navigator would have to be able to guess what the speed was. He'd ask the guy who was running the ship what speed are we going. This is up until very recently. What speed are we going? And of course, before there were accurate speedometers, they said, you know, back with the you know, Jacques Cartier and these guys, it was like, how fast are we going? I don't know, we're going to be going just fast enough. You know, it was. And then, so you know that, and you know direction, and how do you do that with a compass? And you'd be, it's called dead reckoning because you don't have anything to fix with, and if your reckoning is just, I reckon that, that's what it's called that. So we must be going here. And then at night, they get up their sextant, the navigator, and they look at the sky, they find a star, they look at their, their, their ephemeris table and say, okay, I thought we were here, we're actually a little closer to here. That's all very interesting. You think desert ants are doing this? Yeah, actually they are, and they're doing it from the stars, not the sun, because in Tunisia it's pretty freaking warm during the day. So if you're an ant and you go out in the desert, you get, you get cooked. So you go ahead at night. Go ahead at night. So if they're going to have to be in the night, they have to take a fix from the stars. And if you don't think that is just, if you don't have awe in that, you know what the really cool thing is? You can do it with the sun, too. If you're in the day, you can do it with the sun. You can if you're a Tunisian ant, because you've got the sun in the Okay. But if you do it, because the sun's also going to have a certain position. But the Tunisian ants do it at night, so they do it from the stars. And the thing about the sun is it's always been in the same place in the sky for a very, 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 very long time since it's been life on Earth. The position of the stars changes. This means that each ant has to learn the position of the stars. And how do we know they're doing this? It's a great story, isn't it? How do we know they're doing this? Well, we shoot their clocks. Because we know how a sailor moves. I have to know what time of day it is to know where that star would be. Never mind, no 
get wrecked. So they, they always do. And in fact, the other set of people that did get wrecked, they put a new book around. Podcast but is released under Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you gotta tell me because I'm reserving that right, giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me? My email address is dave.broadbeck.org.uk at algomau.ca. My website is people.ac.ca/broadbeck/blog. Uh, most of the music, yeah, all the music's PodSafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the PodSafe Music Network. See you next time. It's more or less that. I don't know. So if I want to go 300 meters north of there, it will take me directly to the front gates, front uh, door of the Hockey Hall of Fame. So the landmark 
along with other cues. So I've got that landmark. I've also got the fact that I can use my sun compass. I know where north and south is in Toronto because I know the sun rises in the east and I know the time of day. Right? So I know where north is and I know where south is. Now, I, I know that instinctively from Toronto and Toronto because I live there. But you can always figure out where north is. On a clear day, I can always know where north is. No matter where I am on the planet. Because of where the sun is. As long as I know what time of day it is. So I, I can use my sun compass because I know it's in the south part of the city. I can use a landmark to get me there and tell me the direction. And then I can use the Hockey Hall of Fame itself as a beacon. And I can't believe the editor let us put in all this content about hockey in this article. But it made me happy. I wanted to view about Montreal, but I figured no one else in the world knew things about Montreal. Like, so then if you're down by Olympic Stadium, then no one's going to know that. So I went with the CN Tower. But I got the Hockey Hall of Fame in there, so... Both of these things, beacons and landmarks, and you see what I was doing there when I was navigating in my head here to the Hockey Hall of Fame. I was using a sun compass, and then I used path integration, right? I've got to keep going this distance. I'm about so many kilometers away. I have a map in my head. So I'm standing at, let's pretend I'm standing at uh, Bloor and, and Young. Okay? So I know that I have to walk down. So I'm a couple kilometers from all the way downtown, maybe three, four kilometers from all the way downtown. Now, if I want to walk all the way down there, which I did back in my foolish days in graduate school, I would walk everywhere because uh, I was lazy and it was a big city. And we couldn't afford a car. And who wants a car? And so you guys said, So I walk, and I need that direction. Oh, okay, I walk about five kilometers. So that gives me, and then roughly this angle towards the CN Tower, that's north. So I'm using all these sources of information to effectively navigate. And most animals will be doing this as well. A landmark used to be something that's been studied for the last 20 years, maybe a little more now, 25 years. Um, people have gotten really into this. And most of this work, um, most of the important theoretical and empirical contributions have come from one guy, Ken Chang. Ken, uh, Ken Chang, C-H-E-N-G. <clears throat> I was at Macquarie University in, uh, I think it's Melbourne, Australia. Ken's too smart. He's actually just too smart. It's disturbing being around Ken. You have to get used to being around Ken because you've got to go, okay, he's operating a whole other plane than I am. Everybody says that. The first time you hear Ken give a talk, people go, oh, Chen, yeah, he says great stuff. I've never heard him speak before. But you're not going to get it the first time. You're going to hear him talk three or four times. You're like, oh, it's one of these Ken talks. Now I get it. And that's in no way saying about Ken. He should be so freaking smart. Lucky enough to know him uh, for a long time. So a lot of this work, Ken either had something to do with or Ken inspired this stuff. And Ken's Canadian. But he was stupid and didn't renew his contract, so he had to move to Australia. We lost a great scientist. Way to go, Canada. Anyway, a lot of the cool work that people like Ken did, but also Colin Cartwright, etc., was done with bees. 
Bees are cool. Ken says that bees are pound for pound the most cognitively complex animal on the planet. They don't weigh much, so it's maybe damning them a faint price. Okay, here's a landmark, and here's some food, okay? So the big square there is a landmark, the little circle there, that's food. The bees are trained when they fly in to the apiary, I guess it's called an apiary, so it's an apiary where the bees live. There's a little dish of sugar water. Just a little dish of sugar water. But it's like super concentrated, so it's it's like bee, it's like delicious for bees. They learn very quickly where the food is. How do we know that they've learned anything? Let's take the food out and have them fly in. Guess where they fly around? Right around there. So we know they've learned it. Ken told me that he's got, like, outside his lap, there's a beehive. He opens the window, lets a bee in, closes the window, and the experiment starts. Another buddy of mine did some bee work. What he did is he, um, he had them individually numbered. He'd put them in the freezer to knock them out, and then he'd take them out and, using a, a microscope and a very thin paintbrush, he'd, he'd paint um, nail polish on their backs, like one... Two, three, so he was being his wish. And he let him back in. Seemed a lot of work to me. <clears throat> but if, you're, if the bees are sort of doing this experiment of their own sort of free will, um, you kind of have to know which bees which. Okay, so that's pretty easy. See what they're doing, though? So they take away the food, they see what the bees search. They search. The cool thing is, they search in a normal distribution, and the peak place of search is right where the, the food was. Okay. Now, if you make the landmark half the size it was before, they search twice as close. So there's no food here. This is now the peak place of search. It's twice as close. If you make it double size, they search, yeah, they search twice as far away. What was the landmark in that experiment? That's a cardboard box. In this case, uh, covered in like black um, uh, construction paper. It's a box in a black construction paper. I know Ken's used pop bottles. Just pretty much anything. Everything else in the room is white. So they got one thing that they're looking for. They're in the white room. Eric Clapton and the moon cream in the white room. There's black curtains by the station. Nothing? No? It was when I was a baby, but still. You gotta... Anyway. So what are they doing here? What the bees seem to be doing is matching the size of their retinal image with the size of the image in retinal memory. Right? Because if they're going twice as close when it's half the size, or twice as far away when it's twice the size, that means what they're doing is they have an image in their retina. Or, yeah, they have an image in their retina of the, the box, the landmark, and an image in memory. 
And they get to the point where this is filling up as much of my retina as it's supposed to. The food must be right here. Of course it's not, because it's a test drive. But that's what they search. Do you see the logic here? Of that interpretation. Does this make sense? Yes. Yeah? Because it's funny, because Ken always says that bees don't see in 3D, they see in 2.5D. Because they don't really probably have binocular vision, but what they're doing is they're getting distance by going with retinal size. Same way you would. I know uh, that the Jordan's further away than Jilly is because his retinal image is much smaller. Right? That's cool. You change the color of the box, it has no effect at all. So you change from black to white, well, we just white because the room's white. Say black to red, and bees can see color, by the way. It's not like, well, they can't see color, so it doesn't matter. We know bees can see color. Color changes have no effect. Using um, a wireframe image, in other words, now taking this box and taking the construction paper off of it, and it's just coat hangers, basically, they still behave as if it's the same landmark. What they're doing, what does that say? That tells you they are paying attention to the edges of the landmark. Well, if you're going to use direction and distance you know, vectors, edges are what you would want to pay attention to. That makes a lot of sense. So they treat it when you change color or even change if it's got an outside at all, has no effect. It shows you what they're paying attention to is the edges. Now, what if we had two landmarks? So in training, you have two landmarks like this, and they're in the training phase. They learn that this is where the food is. You take the food away. You just make sure they've learned that. There are a few places to search is right here. If we twist the landmarks around, do a rotation test, they're following the edges of the landmarks, great. No problem. We can move this thing around in the room. We get that deep place to search. Now, if they were just using angles, and we stretched it out, we would actually expect them to search here. Right? Because it's the right angle. The 245s, so if you go like that, it should get here. And it's not. They search here, and here, and here. So what they're doing here is they're compromising. They know the distance it should be, let's pretend that's five centimeters. It should be five centimeters away between the two of them. That's between the two and five centimeters away. That's the right distance from this landmark in direction, and that's the right distance from this landmark in direction. <coughs> they're sort of half using angle, angle and distance. See, the world typically doesn't do this to you. So it's not a problem. The only people that do this to you are clever experimenters, like call it and Cartwright, call it Cartwright and Chang, and some of the people like that that have done this work. That's who does this to you. Typically, all these sources of information, just like me trying to find the Hockey Hall of Fame, 
all these sources of information tell you exactly the same thing. The way we find out what an animal is using is we put different sources of information in conflict. So we get three key places of search with the scratch test. This is a color card where I can check uh, most of the stuff, and some of their colleagues as well. So if you're interested in bee cognition at all, those are the names to look up. Ken Chang, hardcore vegan, but wine collector. So it's always fun to go to his house for, and he used to invite the graduate students over, because he was a U of T man. He'd invite the graduate students over. He'd always say, don't bring your supervisor, just be us. He was in my committee, he was his faculty member, but he would have us over. And he'd make, he was really actually pretty decent cook, even though there was no meat. <clears throat> you know, so he'd be like, made chili one day, it's all vegetable, that's fine. And like for dessert, we had like, uh, like sweet, like just caramelized sweet potatoes. They're actually really good, because they're very sweet. Right? And then like, you know, he just brings out a bottle of wine, because he was really into wine. We all brought beer and stuff like that. He said, no, no, you know, bring up the wine. I'm drinking this. It's like, this is really good, Ken. Where did I get this? Oh, you can't buy this in stores. Oh, really? Well, you can order it, though, right? Yeah, yeah. No, this is really good. Maybe a bunch of us get together and make a deal. We'll, we'll order a case that said, you just can't afford this. How much was it? Oh, it was about a $400 bottle of wine we just drank. And we're all like, what? Oh, yeah. I went to a, was a conference once. It was in, like, St. Louis. Big meat town, you know? So you go out for steaks. We go to this place, we're ordering these great big steaks. Ken ordered four baked potatoes and about 600 bucks worth of wine. <laughs> He's great. I wish he was here now. Because he called me a doughhead. So he always would say, if you didn't understand something, what are you, some kind of doughhead? So he was something. Any questions about this? Because the next thing we're going to talk about the, the, pigeon, the vector sum model pigeon landmark use, and I can't do that in five minutes. It's, a, it's a, another Ken Chang thing, and it, it's kind of complicated. All right, yeah, please. Um, I kind of got confused about the three um, those. The stretch test, there? Yeah. yeah. And those three dots are not where the food. No. They're always, where they they're always trained, yes, those where they search. They're trained with the one on the top left. Mm -hmm. These now indicate place of peak search. So you get three peaks, not just one. You get the one on the left, one on the right, one on the middle. Okay. Yeah, there's no food there because it's a test. But in training session, there was food in there, so there they Exactly. Okay. Yep. Yep. Anything else? All right, we'll continue this stuff next time. Uh, thanks, guys.